You can be seated. I'd like to welcome you to Alberta Baptist Church this morning. If this is your first time with us, my name's KJ. I'd love to meet you at some point this morning. Uh, as we finish up spring break, I'd like to welcome back many of us who went off on a mission trip to New York this past week. Uh, I heard great things. I heard it was a, a harrowing couple of flights on the way back as well, but we're glad you guys are back with us. Kyle, thanks for leading that trip. Uh, this Sunday begins a special season for us. We're in the church calendar. We're at the season of Lent, and Lent is a looking forward to Easter. It's a special season, uh, and during a special season, we're going to do something special on our Sunday morning here as we begin our worship together. We're going to have a series of readings, readings from my favorite devotional book after the Bible, of course, uh, is The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers, so prayers from back 1500s, 1600s, um, 1700s, and uh, they, the thing I love about it is it really unites our hearts with people who have lived hundreds of years before us. The same desires they had for God are desires that we have today as well. So over the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter, as we begin our worship, we're going to be praying together. This is a prayer, but we'll also have the prayer on the screen, I believe, if you want to see it eyes opened. But this is our prayer this morning. And each Sunday leading up to Easter, we'll have a different focus. Today's focus is on temptation. It's our prayer. Heavenly Father, save me entirely from sin. I know I am righteous through the righteousness of another, but I pant and pine for likeness to your character. I am your child and should bear your image. Enable me to recognize my death unto sin. When sin tempts me back, may I be deaf unto its voice. Grant me to walk as Christ walked to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. I abhor my body of death, its indolence, envy, meanness, pride. Forgive and kill these vices. Have mercy on my unbelief, on my corrupt and wandering heart. When your blessings come, I begin to idolize them, and set my affection on some beloved object, children, friends, wealth, honor. Protect me from making good gifts into false gods. May I overcome such temptations with Christ as my heart's compass. Help me to be always devoted, confident, obedient, resigned, childlike in my trust of you. To love you with soul, body, mind, strength to love my fellow man as I love myself. Help me to be saved from sudden temper, hard thoughts, slanderous words, unkind manners, to master my tongue and keep well guarded the door of my lips. Fill me with grace daily that my life might be a spring of sweet water and my lips a fountain of continual praise before the throne of God. Amen.
This morning, our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word now, may you open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, see how he walks in the wilderness, how he battles temptation, and how he overcomes. And may we see our victory in his victory, our overcoming in his overcoming. May you grant us a persevering spirit as that was in our Lord. May the same persevering spirit be in us as we daily walk through the wilderness and resist temptation. Lord, work this in us by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are starting a new sermon series today, one that we're calling Walking with Jesus in the Wilderness. We just finished the Sermon on the Mount last week, uh, just about the time that Lent was starting on the church calendar. And one of my goals for this series, it is, as you can see, a Lent series. One of my goals for this series is to make Lent this year feel almost like Advent. We don't have any candles to light, but make it feel almost like Advent. What do we normally do in Advent time? We're normally building anticipation Sunday by Sunday that Christmas is coming. Christmas Day is just around the corner. With Lent, we want to build the same sense of anticipation, but with Easter. Easter is coming, y'all. Easter is coming. Resurrection is coming. But admittedly, this buildup in Lent will look and feel different than it does at Christmas with Advent. Uh, The season of Lent should feel different than the season of Advent. Historically, the practice of keeping Lent for 40 days before Easter was a way of identifying and walking with Jesus 
in his 40 days of wilderness journey and temptation. And we all know that the wilderness at times cannot be the most pleasant of places. So don't expect the themes of Lent to be the same as those of Advent. Remember, Advent is hope, joy, peace, love, right? Those are great things. The themes of Lent will feel very much the opposite at first. We'll be looking at temptation, suffering, sorrow. You've got to walk with Jesus through some dark things before the sudden upturn of Easter and resurrection, before you arrive at worship and wonder that is Easter Sunday. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, But with Jesus, we must first walk through the wilderness of temptation, of suffering, of sorrow, before the wilderness is transformed into a place of worship where we stand in awe and wonder at God's grace. But in order to get there, we have to walk with Jesus through some hard things first, through the valley of temptation, through the desert of his suffering, and through the dark night of sorrow. That's why we're beginning here in Matthew chapter 4 and walking with Jesus in the wilderness of temptation. Before we jump into the text, let me just remind you a little bit of where we are in Matthew's gospel, a little bit of the context. Uh, Something very important has just happened at the end of Matthew 3. Do you know what it is? I see some of you looking. Something very important has just happened. Jesus has just been baptized to fulfill all righteousness, he said. And as the Son of God comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, visibly. People see it. And audibly, people hear a voice. The voice of God the Father speaks from heaven. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You want a moment where you see all the Trinity on display? It's right there. The Son coming up out of the water, the Spirit descending, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son. But what's the very next thing? In every gospel account after Jesus' baptism, what's the very next thing? It's this. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. To be personally tempted by the devil. To go without food, to go without clean water, to go without a change of clothes, to go without shelter from the elements, to go without all the necessities, the basic necessities of life. Jesus does it. The Spirit sends him out to do it in the wilderness. I think there's an application to make here at the very beginning, just from the context. And I I do want to make this from the start. Walking with Jesus in the wilderness, walking in the wilderness of temptation is not a sign of God's abandonment. Do you see that? It's quite the contrary. This is how God treats his beloved son. Again, verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This may be the main thing you need to hear this morning. Christian, if you're walking through a wilderness of temptation right now, 
It is not a sign that God has abandoned you. This is how he treats his well-beloved son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased to go into the wilderness, to go without food, to go hungry, to be tempted. A journey in the wilderness often comes upon those with whom God is well pleased. Just ask Job. Remember Job, right? Remember the book of Job? After losing so much, Job's wife comes to him in the wilderness and voices the big temptation. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? It's encouraging. (laughs) Bit of advice from your wife. Why don't you just curse God and die, Job? The assumption is God has cursed you. Why don't you curse him? That's the way Job's wife understood the situation. But what was the reality? The reality of the situation was just the opposite. God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one else like him. No one else walking uprightly like him. The waves of temptation then that hit Job wasn't a result of God's curse, but of his commendation. It's the exact opposite of what you assume. The same is true for Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Go into the wilderness and be tempted. Now, this is just an observation from the context, but it may be the words you most need to hear this morning. God has not abandoned you when your temptations come upon you like a flood. Do not think for a second, God has abandoned me. This is how he deals with his well-beloved son. The very opposite may in fact be true. God is with you. And those temptations may only exist to make you more keenly aware of God's hand upon your life. Never forget this, church. Jesus, his well-beloved status didn't give him a free pass out of a wilderness journey. It was the very thing that led him into the wilderness in the first place. Jesus didn't get a free pass. You won't get a free pass either. But you do get the privilege of walking with Jesus through the wilderness of temptation. Let's see how Jesus walked through the wilderness of his own temptation and what it might look for us to follow after him. Look again with me, verses 1 to 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's that's an understatement. (laughs) He then became hungry. Verse 3, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Here's the first temptation. If you're taking notes, I know some of you like to take notes. If you're taking notes, I'm calling this the temptation of provision. Provision. Will God provide? Will we have what we need? That's a temptation for us as well. The enemy comes to Jesus at a moment of need. The moment of his most acute hunger. After 40 days, he becomes hungry. He's, and he's hungry. Fasting makes Jesus hungry, just like it would make you hungry. 
Jesus fasted for 40 days, which probably makes him hungrier than you have ever been hungry. You know what hunger is, but probably not like this. And we all know from experience that being hungry doesn't make things easier. It makes them harder, right? Being hungry doesn't make temptation easier to withstand. It makes it harder. When people get hungry, we often describe them as what? Hangry. Hangry. They're, they're hungry and they're angry together. When, when we get angry and short with others because we're, we're hungry. Hey, anger be- becomes a temptation that's harder to resist because there's, there's an ache. There's a hunger in me. So the devil comes to tempt Jesus at his most convenient, most opportune time when Jesus is feeling painfully hungry. He's feeling weak from fasting. He's feeling lack. Now just think about it. Apart from the incarnation, God becoming man, none of those adjectives would ever be used to describe God, would they? Feeling hungry, feeling weak, feeling lack. That's part of the humility of the incarnation. Jesus felt all those things. And Satan seized upon the moment and pressed in with this first temptation. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. What's the temptation here? Isn't the temptation a, a temptation to a good thing? Bread? Bread is good, right? Bread is good. You've, you've had some bread. It's good. Um, unless you're, what's, what is it? Intolerant. Gluten, right? Unless you're gluten intolerant. Bread, otherwise, is a good thing. It's a natural need. Hunger, eating. The need is natural. And satisfying that bodily appetite is, is good and natural. So what's the temptation? The temptation is to fulfill a good and natural appetite, but not in the right place or time. Satan presents Jesus with an enticing lure for immediate gratification. If you are the Son of God, who spoke the universe into being, then this is certainly within your power. Command these stones to become bread. A good thing is within your grasp. Reach out and take it. Speak and manipulate the elements. You can do it and you can have immediate gratification. Jesus could have. He could have worked a miracle, turning the stone into bread. He'd done far, far greater things. But this was a miracle that wasn't meant to be. Because the greater miracle was persevering. Right? The greater miracle was persevering through the hunger, persevering through the wilderness, persevering through the temptation. The greater miracle was in persevering, not in the quick fix to the situation. How did Jesus recognize that? How did he recognize that and overcome? He did it through 
the scripture. You see that, verse 4? But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, if, if you're like me and your Bible has that bit in all caps, it's not because Jesus is shouting. It's because Jesus is quoting. If you, New American Standard, if you see it in all caps, that's a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, it's vital for us to see that Jesus, who as God, has all resources at his disposal. But Jesus still overcomes temptation again and again by properly applying the Scripture. And that's a resource we have at our disposal as well. Jesus has all resources, but has he overcome temptation? It's through something we have, the Scripture. Properly applying it. If we want to walk with Jesus through the wilderness of temptation, then we've got to grasp the resource that he grasped in the moment of need. The scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. By revelation. By scripture. Jesus conquered physical appetite with a fiercer appetite for spiritual words, words of truth. He overcame Satan's first temptation by feasting on God's word, by believing a better truth. And if that's true for Jesus, it must be true for our wilderness encounters with temptation as well. If Jesus overcame through a proper application of God's word, then we will need to do that as well if we are to overcome. I'm going to save most of the application for the end of the message, but I do want certain bits of application to start falling into place as we go along. And here's, here's a big one. I, don't miss this. Don't miss the importance of Scripture. Don't miss the importance of seeing through the devil's lie and overcoming that lie with God's truth. That's how you do it. You'll see that same dynamic at work in the second temptation. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here we see Satan change his tact. If Jesus is going to appeal to Scripture, well, I can too. The devil seems to say, I can do that too. I know Scripture. And here we learn something important. Scripture can be misapplied. Scripture can be mishandled. The devil can certainly misapply it. And actually, that may be all he can do with Scripture. Because deceit is in his nature. His every appeal to Scripture is going to be one that is twisted in some way. But twisting Scripture is not just something Satan can do. We can do that as well. We can twist. We can misapply Scripture. It's part of sin's nature. That's still in us to take what is true and to twist it. To take something that is good 
and pervert it. For example, sin takes the scripture about God's grace and twists it. If God's grace covers all my sin, then I can live however I want to live. Right? That's sin taking a truth and twisting it to an end, to an application that is wrong. Sin takes a biblical truth like God's sovereignty and misapplies it. If God is in control of everything, then no choices I make really matter. Right? That's taking a truth and misapplying it. Sin takes a truth like God's sovereignty over salvation and jumps to a false conclusion. If God really is the one saving people, then I don't need to evangelize. He'll do it without me. In each case, sin takes a scriptural truth and swerves away to a bad application. Satan is doing that here. The scripture says, God's angels will take care of you. They'll lift you up, so go ahead and jump. If you're taking notes, I've labeled this second temptation as the temptation of presumption. Presumption. Because of Jesus' response. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not presume upon the Lord. But oh, you, you might say, isn't Jesus combating Scripture with Scripture? It might look like that at first. On the other hand, it says this. But what is Jesus really doing? He isn't combating Scripture with Scripture. He is interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Here's the meaning of a plain verse about putting God to the test. It, it helps interpret the more obscure verse about angels, about striking your foot upon a stone. Jesus avoids Satan's misapplication of the scripture by giving a clear verse that exposes the misapplication. And you know what, church? We ought to be doing the same thing. For the person who hears about God's grace and then misapplies it by saying, I can live however I want to live because of grace, we respond with scripture. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to live in live in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? We apply a clear verse to show how we've misapplied the Bible's teaching on grace. What if someone says that God's sovereignty makes an excuse for their laziness, for their passivity? We apply a very clear verse of Scripture, Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, God's in control. He's working in you. But what should you do? How should you apply it? You work as well. God's working in you. Work out your own salvation then with fear and trembling. If someone makes God's sovereignty and salvation into an excuse for not sharing the gospel, for not evangelizing the lost, we destroy that sinful misapplication with a very clear verse of Scripture. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's a command. You do it. Go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You're commanded to share the good news and make disciples. 
Like Jesus, we combat the sinful twisting and misapplication of God's word by bringing the rest of God's word to bear upon it. That's how Jesus overcame the second temptation. But you may still be wondering, what's the temptation here? What's the essence of this temptation? What's at stake? What was the presumption in this temptation? Not only is there a temptation to misapply God's word, this second temptation for Jesus is one to reach out and grasp immediate acclaim. Just jump off the temple, come floating down in the arms of the angels, and immediately everyone's going to acknowledge this is the Messiah who's just descended while we have been worshiping here. Immediately, the acclaim, the Messiah is here. We saw him descend from heaven. He came down upon the altar of God at the temple. Satan is tempting Jesus to presume upon God's protection on the one hand, but also upon God's plan. You all know that it's the religious elites who opposed Jesus, who hated him. Satan is essentially saying here, do this and they'll embrace you. Jump off the temple, descend in their presence, and they will embrace you as the Messiah. The religious elites who were your biggest enemies will become your biggest allies. And we know if that had happened, it would have meant a dramatic reversal in God's plan. It would mean that those cries of crucify him, crucify him, could all be avoided. The cross could be avoided. If Jesus would just take hold of the immediate gratification that was before him, all that could be avoided. A claim could be immediate. But Jesus said, no. No, he refused. He knew it was presumption. He knew the quickest route to blessing is not always the best, is not always the right one. He resisted. And Satan had one more, one more temptation for him. Look at verse 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. I'm calling this third temptation the temptation of power. The temptation of power. All the kingdoms of the earth and their glory I will give to you. Jesus, you can have it all. You can have all the power without all the pain. You can have the kingdom without the cross. You can have the reward without the sacrifice. And you can have it all right now, immediately. Just fall down and worship me, Lucifer says. What's the price tag for all this immediate power? Seems small. Worship. Just bow down and worship me. It kind of shows you just how important worship is in the grand scheme of things, right? That's the only price. Just bow down and worship me. Let me me make this modern day comparison. It's kind of like... Putin, president of Russia, saying to President Zelensky of Ukraine or President Biden, 
I'll stop the war. I'll resign and retire. I'll give back all of Ukraine, all that I've taken. And I'll give you Russia as well. If you just bow down before me and say, you're the greatest, Putin. You really are the best ever. You just do that, it'll all be over. Now, besides not trusting that offer, you know, Putin's retired before and he's come back, I think. Putting that aside, you might think, okay, what's the big deal? It might be worth a try, President Zelensky. It might be worth a try just to end everything. It might be worth a shot to save a lot of suffering, right? Jesus, it's worth a shot to miss out on the cross, right? No, Jesus says. And he says it forcefully. He says, go, verse 10, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. For Jesus to do this, for Jesus to worship Satan would be the ultimate inverting of all values. It would be the creator worshiping the creation. It would be the the fountain of all good worshiping the father of all lies. I can't fathom what that would have meant for us, for the universe, if that had happened. But Jesus resisted. He resisted the immediate grasp of power and Satan's offer to abdicate his throne in exchange for a moment's worship. Jesus overcomes once again through God's word. You see that? He quotes the scripture again. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And for those walking with Jesus in the wilderness of temptation, that is how we will overcome as well. Let me bring things to a close by asking and answering this question. What does walking with Jesus in the wilderness of temptation look like for us today? Three things. Again, if you're taking notes, three things. Three applications here at the end. First, it looks like recognizing when we are being tempted. It looks like recognizing when we're being tempted. This is really half the battle, is recognizing when you're in the wilderness, encountering temptation. If you don't know there's a fight going on, you're not not gonna put up any resistance. Knowing there's a battle. If you don't recognize something as a temptation, then you're not going to resist it. You're not going to fight it with God's word. You're you're just going to do what comes natural. You're just going to give in if you don't recognize it for what it is as a temptation. Jesus identified what was happening to him as temptation. And he knew why it was happening when it did. Temptation came when he was hungry when he was tired, when he was feeling weak and exhausted. The enemy knows when the opportune time is. That's what Luke's gospel says after this. The devil left him looking for another opportune time. You need to be on your guard and know when you are most likely to be tempted, when you are walking in the wilderness. It's when all the stress piles up on you from work. It's when I'm bored and have nothing better to do. It's when I'm sick 
and out of my normal routines. It's when my kids keep interrupting me throughout the day. It's when I consume that entertainment. It's when I feel overwhelmed by the day's headlines. It's when it's late at night and it's harder to reason with my anxious thoughts. If you don't recognize the times when you're more vulnerable, if you don't recognize the times when you're in the wilderness, the enemy has a much, much easier job to do. You don't even recognize there's a battle. You don't even recognize that temptation is happening. So first, we need to recognize when we are being tempted and when that's most likely to happen to us. Second thing. Second, after we recognize the temptation, we need to identify the lie. Identify the lie. Did you catch the central lie present in each of Satan's temptations in Matthew chapter 4? There's a common theme that runs through each of them. What was it? It's the theme of immediacy. Immediacy. You can have it now. You can have it now. You can have that good thing now. You don't have to wait for it. You can have it now. Just reach out and take it. That's really part of the original lie in the garden, isn't it? You can have it now. Reach out. Take it. It's probably part of the lie that Satan tells himself quite often. I can have that good thing now. But Jesus resists. He resists Satan's temptation to immediate gratification. He knows the allure of the immediate. And he knows that it often comes at the expense of the eternal. Temporary gain for long-term loss. Jesus knows the longer, harder road will be the best road in the end. What Satan offers is kind of like the allure of the lottery. You thought about this? The lottery. The lottery plays upon our desires for great wealth just to fall into our laps immediately and effortlessly. So people buy the false promise continually, buy the false promise of a lottery ticket, offering that immediate reward. But what happens? Well, one, it never pays out. Or if it does, what happens to those who win? You can find story after story after story. The immediate short-term gain of winning only led to long-term pain and dysfunction and lives falling apart. Why? Because you skipped something. You skipped the longer road that would have made you wise. You, the shortcut ended up destroying their lives, their friendships, their happiness. We can all be tempted by the lie of immediate gratification. Jesus was tempted here with food. You can be tempted with food. We can be tempted by good things if we short-circuit what they are good for. Pleasure is good, but it's believing the lie of immediate gratification that leads to all kinds of addictions. Success is good, but cutting corners for immediate gains leads to all kinds of trouble in the long run. Sex is good. 
But if you want it without the work that goes into a covenant marriage relationship, if you want it through the immediate gratification of a fling or through a screen, then you're believing the lie. You've fallen for the temptation. You've sold yourself short on what was best. And the immediate gratification didn't satisfy, did it? Didn't satisfy like it promised. And in the end, it left you scarred and wounded. I hope you can see that we buy Satan's lie of immediacy in many of the things that tempt us. We've got to get better at identifying that lie when we see it. Here's a third and final thing. We've got to resist the temptation with truth. Resist the temptation with the truth. We've got to recognize when we're being tempted. We've got to identify the lie in the temptation. And we've got to resist the temptation with the truth. Jesus does all three things in each of these three temptations. We have to grow in our ability to do these things as well if we're going to follow Jesus in overcoming temptation. I know, and you probably know as well, that I can recognize I'm being tempted. I can even identify the lie, why this thing is wrong. But unless my heart is captured by a superior truth, I won't resist for very long. The immediacy wins when I can't grasp the bigger picture. I will eat an entire sleeve of Oreos because I can't grasp in the moment what it'll do to me tomorrow or what I'm going to say to my dentist six months down the road. Or maybe I know this will have me up in the middle of the night with a stomach ache, but in the moment, I just can't make myself care. Right? You've been there in the moment. I just can't make myself care. It's like a temporary madness descends and I can't see the future consequences. I, can't, I actually groan a little when I find the Oreos in the pantry <laughs> because I know temptation is coming knocking and I have a future date with it. Uh, that's, that's an important point, actually. There's a lot of wisdom to be had in avoiding the occasions of sin. What occasions sin for you? Identify it. If, if I know buying those Oreos will lead to gluttony, <laughs> I'd be wise not to put myself in that situation. If I know surfing the internet mindlessly when I'm bored or stressed is going to lead to temptation, then I'd be wise to avoid it, to avoid getting online when I'm bored or stressed. If I know my child is quicker to ask Google embarrassing questions than to ask me, then I'd be wise not to give them a device that gives them unlimited access to the world and all of its information and answers. Not until they show a desire to resist temptation with a superior passion for Jesus. Not until they show the ability to resist temptation with a firm grasp upon the truth. Jesus calls us all to walk with him. And while we're in this world, that means walking with him through the wilderness. 
through the wilderness of temptation. Let's walk wisely as Jesus walked. But let's also walk with this sweet assurance from the Scripture written upon our hearts. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, in our temptation. Let's pray now to our sympathetic high priest who is faithful and ever ready to help in our time of need. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome the temptation of the immediacy, of the shortcut, of the quick fix. You have gone the long haul for us. You did not avoid the cross. You did not avoid the pain, but you walked steadfastly. You set your face like flint toward Jerusalem, toward suffering, toward that cross that we might be saved. Lord, I ask that in our moments of temptation that our eyes might turn to a Savior who has stood fast for us and who promises to hold us fast. May our hearts continually turn to a king who has overcome all things. And may we be overcomers as well as we believe and embrace him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.